Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you, we have a great show today. And and I said right before we came on the on air that my guest, she is in two great movies. I'm gonna get you sucker in Hollywood, Hollywood, uh, Hollywood Shuffle, which is like it's like a masterpiece. Which I remember seeing that at the Ritz Theater in Philadelphia when it came out because it wasn't playing in any of the New Jersey theaters. And my guest, she's had a great career. It's Amory Johnson. How you doing? I'm good. Um, it's funny when uh, Hollywood Shuffle, you, you never know when you do a film, especially such an experimental, ultra low budget. It was, you know, on the fly, guerrilla filmmaking. It's true that he did it on his credit cards. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing, but we were all friends. And um, there was really no structured script that that I could look at and I, I it was just like hey uh, I was I was dating a stand-up comic at the time so and I was I'm a comedian so I was you know orbiting in that world and Robert said hey do you want to you know do, I said sure whatever this is fantastic um and uh we shot it piecemeal and then I my career kind of sh- starts and I'm off in, uh, where am I? I? I'm off in Italy doing a film. And um, I was in Italy for about three months. And then um, I flew my mother out to, to join me in Italy because uh, we, we always loved to be on location together. So we were traveling around Italy. It was fabulous. And then we went to Canada because I needed to do something there. And so before coming back home, we went to New York because I needed to do something. Driving from the airport to the hotel was a Hollywood Shuffle billboard. Well, you know, <laughs> it was like, wait, what? It was one of those movies, you know, when I think back about it, you know, I was, it was 80, when did that come out? 88? Oh my gosh, yeah, I think so. I, yeah. was, I was starting in the Philadelphia comedy scene at the time. So we all had a hip sense of humor. And we were not, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey. So it was a different downtown Philadelphia, Center City, Philadelphia, was, was a different scene, you know? Right. And we all went, and it, comics would just talk about it because it was it was so funny. And it, it was, as you said, it's, it's piecemeal together, but everything, like the hoe cakes, the hoe cake, just those different scenes, it was so good. And it really, it really, <laughs> it, it was one of those things that just captivated people. And I think, it, it, and it showed young filmmakers that they can do something without having a big budget. Yeah, and and it, you know, thank goodness uh, for I believe it was um, Samuel Goldwyn saw a rough of it, and then provided Robert the funds to finish, to do post, to do additional scenes, and um, uh, obviously, you know, I don't look at my work, but occasionally they'll do a retrospective or whatever. So I actually viewed. Hollywood Shuffle, maybe last year, maybe there was an anniversary, I don't remember. And it still has legs. I mean, it it's it it is now more of a um social comment beyond the social comment. And and that's why it's still very relative. Uh, I mean, related. You can relate to it. It's current but it's iconic. He, I, you know, it. I still laugh at zombie pimps and well, hoe cakes and it's know, just it's of- just funny. And and that's like you know when you break it down, you know, funny is funny. And you yeah. know, it's like if you watch Airplane, you're gonna laugh at it. You know, it right. may be dated, but it's just funny. So anyway, I want to ask you. Okay, you grew up in L.A. You yes. grew up now. What made you decide to become an actor? I mean, because I, you know, I always think that people if they grew up in L.A. When I lived there, I was thinking. If you're not from L.A. or if you don't want to yeah. be an actor, I don't know why you live there. I mean, it's just because it's expensive. It's just something different. I would see people are all moving out here to you know become a salesperson. I'm like, why? Like you can you can make more money and ex- afford a be- not nicer place somewhere else because it's because it's 78 degrees and it's yeah. December the 14th. I know, I know. Rub okay. it in, rub it in. And I mean, I I am biased because I'm second generation Angelino, so I'm kind of a rarity. And I've lived in the same neighborhood my whole life. I still, uh, I communicate with my, um, you know, school chums ever that, that we've known each other since elementary school. 
Um, it is when my parents, I'm the youngest, there was a, gosh, almost 15 year difference between the oldest and the youngest. So when my father, who was a World War II veteran, part of the Tuskegee, he was part of the Tuskegee Air Corps. He was one of the engineers of all the landing strips for the Tuskegee Airmen in Italy. And so when uh, he returned from World War II, my mother was a school teacher. My father got a law degree, but back then, it was very difficult for African-Americans to become lawyers and make a, uh, make a living at it. So the second best choice in a career for um, people of color, he became a police officer, LAPD officer, and he loved it. And um, with that money, he was able to buy a piece of property in a community in Los Angeles where black people didn't live. And so he bought this plot of land and by that time, I think my oldest brothers were, you know, probably in elementary school. And <clears throat> right before the shovel hit the ground, uh, the neighbors found out that the owners of the property were black. And they created a petition because back then you could create a petition. Now, this is Los Angeles. Everyone thinks Los Angeles is progressive. And hip. anyway, long story short. Uh, you had to have, uh, I think, 67% of the community to approve, or maybe back then it was even more. Anyway, the family that refused to sign the petition was a Jewish family uh, who lived on the same street, who later became my pediatrician, and we were the second African-American family to live in the community. <laughs> so I stayed. I said, my parents went through such hell to raise us in this neighborhood. I've never left. So growing up, it wasn't because I was in Los Angeles, in the heart of Los Angeles. I just, you know, some God placed me on earth to be an actor. And I knew by kindergarten what I wanted to do. And my parents were unconditionally supportive. All they wanted for me was to have uh, uh, something to, you know, lean on and, and rely on. And so I, 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 my minor was in English, so I always knew I could get a job doing something. But fortunately, right out of college, I started my career, and I haven't looked back. Well, you went to UCLA, right? Yes. Okay. First, I went to Cal State LA because UCLA had satisfied their quota of black students. So I was sent to Cal State LA, which was absolutely fantastic. I loved Cal State Los Angeles. And um, that's when I started majoring in theater arts. It was a fantastic experience. And then after two years, I, uh, UCLA opened up their quotas and I was able to go to UCLA. Now, when you graduated UCLA, because they have a good theater program, they have a good program. Did you, that, that helped you? Did you meet other actors and you guys started to network together or how did you go no. cause from college? Cause I always talk to people who go to acting school, you know, they can teach you all about acting, but they never teach you, Hey, here's how you get an agent. They never, they never say yeah. let's have a class called the business of acting. So how did you hit the ground running? How did you start getting work? It's interesting because I don't know about now because you know, I'm old, but back then colleges, college courses, there was no college course saying, okay, this is what a resume, this is what an agent does, none of that. So you kind of learn as you do, as you go. But I was a, uh, a desperate reader of autobiographies and biographies of Hollywood. And so I kind of already plotted out my, my, my journey based on what I knew and what I read about the studio system and all of that. So I knew exactly what I was going to do. So uh, once I left, once I graduated from UCLA, I immediately did local theater. I must have done like 14 plays, <laughs> equity waiver plays in two years. And from then, from there, I got my first agent and the rest is history. I joined the Screen Actors Guild in 1983. And, um, you know, booked a series. Um, Camille Cosby was my first CPA. <laughs> and she said, become incorporated. And I did. And it was the best financial advice anyone had ever given me. And um, 
here I am. What was it like for you during the strike? Because, you know, I know it's funny. I was talking to someone about this. I was talking to Michael Boatman about this yesterday. And we said how... I love Michael Boatman. He's wonderful. And we were saying, you know, he had to cancel the first time doing my show because no one could talk during the strike. Which yeah. to us made no sense because people who aren't involved in the business have no idea what the strike was about. So I think with having actors on podcasts and such, talking about the strike he would bring some... He did not have to cancel. He could have he talked to you about anything but any current project. Okay. Well, he, a lot of people see a lot of people didn't know that. So yeah, that, we could it. talk about... You and I could have talked about anything. I just wouldn't be able to promote a current project during the strike. Well, what did you think about the strike? Because you were the, you were a vice president for the for SAG. So so what yes. was going? I mean, going into the negotiations, did you have your own view? Because you know it a little better yes. than other people because you had a position. Yes, um, I had been on uh, multiple negotiating negotiating committees prior uh, during SAG Legacy, and. Um, uh, I was not on this negotiating committee, nor would they have ever had me on this negotiating committee. I'm considered a militant uh, <laughs> on the board, um, the grand old damn militant. Um, I knew that we were up against it. I knew that um, we were not prepared to negotiate AI. I knew that eventually we would capitulate and we'd end up with one of the worst contracts I've ever witnessed in my multiple, multiple years. Um, as a union member, it's very sad. It'll be the end of many people's careers. There's no positive way out of this. Um, whatever we agree to now, we'll be, we'll be stuck with for the rest of our lives, and it'll pro progressively get worse. Um, the industry does not like us. They'd love to be able to do the job without us. And with the current AI proposals that, that, that have been shoved down our throats, um, the our employers will succeed to be able to do this business without us. Well, you know, and that's awful. But you know, but back to your earlier career, I just wanted to find out your your view on the strike because it's very important because a lot of people don't know about it. But your earlier career, now when you started out, you got you well, double. A full disclosure: during the most recent strike, my production company signed an interim agreement, so we were working. I signed the interim agreement. I agreed with the, the terms of the interim agreement. So I, I'm actually still in production. We started in October. Um, so um, I knew that it was very important to have as many productions under that interim agreement as possible to prove to our <clears throat> larger employers that the, that, the, that the contract was not onerous, would not bankrupt the industry, and many of the terms were needed for both uh, union side and industry side. So, um, full disclosure, I was one of the 1,400 to sign that interim agreement. What's your production you're working on? Uh, we are doing an independent film called The Addiction of Hope. And uh, we're still in production. We wrap uh, in Bellingham, Washington in March of 2024. And what's it about? It's about a aging actress who uh, is forced to make a decision between her career and the illness of her sister. Okay, well, that's good that you're, you're shooting, and it's good you worked on the strike. Now, when you were younger in your career, how did, how did what's happening now happen? Because I'm from the I'm, I told you, I had, I had Ernest Thomas, and we talked about, you know, we all were, any, anyone who's over 50, and what's yeah. happening? We all remember the Doobie Brothers episode. Everyone remembers oh, that. Uh, which Doobie Ubi? Yeah. yeah right? and that, but so, but so, how did that come about? Because it must have been interesting because you were going into a cast that they had already been, yeah, for a while. So you've been you had done Hill Street Blues a few times. You had done Double Trouble. So you were you were getting your your legs up. You were working yeah. a lot. You you know, how did what's happening now happen? How did that all come about? Um, it was it was a basic audition. Uh, my, my agents at the time uh, submitted me for the role of Nadine Thomas, and I auditioned with hundreds of other actors. And um, I, uh, you know, I, I was very lucky, very fortunate to get the role. Um, my first love was comedy. So I, I'm, I'm a trained comedian in improv and all, music, uh, musical theater and all of that. And so that's what I was doing for, for quite, a, quite a while. 
um, drama just kind of dropped in my lap and I happened to love that too. But uh, multi-camera sitcoms was my first uh, love affair. And to be cast in uh, a reboot, and they weren't using that term back then, but to be recast in a reboot of what's happening, a show that I watched growing up, and then there I was as um, uh, Nadine Thomas, working with probably one of the funniest people, Ernest and Raven Simone, without question, the funniest people I've ever worked with in my life. Um, It was daunting. It was fun. I was surely Hemphill was very hard on me, but I learned a very valuable lesson from Shirley. She, but she did not suffer fools. She was, she was a, 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 a just a wonderful professional. The whole cast was great. We, we Ernie and I loved each other. We had such a blast, and um, it was three really good seasons. Now, how does that change your life? I mean, you all of a sudden, I know you have a job. I mean, and it's just yeah. a real job. It's not like when you, you do some recurring, okay, or you get a pilot, then it doesn't get picked up. Now you're on a show. You get through the first season. And, and I try to tell people, you know, back then these shows had 22 episodes. You know, it wasn't like Netflix 26. was 10. 20, okay. But, and, and everybody watched them. I mean, because there was no cable so what was yeah. that like for you it had to have changed your life because one you have a job but people had to start recognizing you and and you know it must be odd to get recognized in public it uh, because i first of all uh we shot in glendale california and back then it was still a one road town it was lovely it was a village it was very quaint right um it wasn't as large and 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 developed as it is now so we were in this really tiny studio. I think there were two sound stages and three bathrooms. <coughs> and it was just lovely. Um, it was very intimate. And because I lived literally four miles from the sound stage, my life didn't change at all. I would go to work, go home, see my neighbors. Um, I didn't feel the weight of being on uh, such a popular show, of course. There were the um, much anticipated and welcomed uh, obligations of being recognized and asking to be at events and stuff like that. But my foundation, I grew up with such a sturdy middle class foundation that I squirreled away every dollar and um, my life didn't change financially because I, I, I wasn't allowed to touch that money, man. I have the, be- I have the same accountant, no, no longer Camille Cosby. From Camille Cosby, I went to a gentleman who's been my accountant since that day. So he's my, been my accountant since 1986. And um, my life really didn't change. I just knew that I was blessed. So when that series ends, well, first of all, it says, you look up the video, it says you're an impressionist too. Do you do impressions? I did. I did. Um, well, when I went over to, um, when I went over to In Living Color, that's where I really did um, some of my uh, impressions. But I did Mary Tyler Moore and Oprah Winfrey and Sherry Belafonte and just a few other folks. And um, yeah, yeah. So you know, as a as a as a comedian, I did everything but stand up because I I'm not crazy. You all are crazy. That's oh. nah, fine. It's fun. Um, and we're a little crazy. So yeah. after what's happening now, yeah, you end up on the heat of the night. Now this is a, uh, this is a drama, and it's got amazing actors. I mean, like <laughs> like it's not. Hey, Ernest Thomas is great, but he's 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 not. Those, Howard Rollins. Yeah. Yeah. Or it was Carl Connor too, right? So it was, you know, so you're looking at, so how did, did that, was that an audition? Did they offer you? Because you were coming out of a comedy. That was no offer. I auditioned with, I think they said, um, I think I auditioned with 300 other actresses. That's what the casting director used to say. I don't know if it's true, but um, many, many actresses auditioned for in, in the heat of the night. That truly changed my life um because 
What's happening now was exceedingly popular, but it was insulated. You know, it was very, it was a very Afrocentric popular show. The average white person didn't really, you know, except for you, yeah. didn't really um, watch what's happening now as regularly. Um, and it was on a syndicated, it was one of the first, you know, uh, uh, Channel 5 out here, which I guess back then was considered, I don't know what it was, Columbia Television, had a block of syndicated shows. So it's not like we were on in 100% of the country with what's happening now. Cut to In the Heat of the Night, first we started on NBC and then we went to CBS or maybe it was the other way around. That was a uh, network show, primetime network show. My life changed. How long did it take you? How long was the audition process for that? Because once again, it is primetime. It has a strong cast. Is it, you know, did you go in and then a brass, you know, studio brass called you back or was it a few steps and then they finally said, okay, we're going to have you and three other people come in and all sweat it out. Well, we, you Ooh, know. man, yeah, you go in, you have the initial audition, and so you're with, you're, you, it's a cattle call. Everyone is there. Um, <clears throat> then they wheedle it down, and you have to go in again, and then they wheedle it down, and then eventually you end up at a network uh, session where you're with the honchos of the network and Carol O'Connor. And so... Um, I believe they were still looking for Virgil Tibbs at the time. So I think my character was cast or in, in the process of being cast maybe a little bit before uh, Virgil Tibbs because they were looking at, I mean, they were looking at Carl Lumley, believe it or not, O.J. Simpson, um, you know, they, but obviously Howard <laughs> was, so maybe they were waiting on Howard so I didn't know who Virgil Tibbs was going to be played by, but I did have to go in and I did have to meet Carol O'Connor. And um, and then we got the fantastic news and it was the pilot. It was actually a movie of the week. We did a two hour uh, pilot, which then became the first two episodes of ultimately, I did 118 episodes. Um, but we shot, it was a movie of the week. So it wasn't the same pressure as a network series. They were kind of taste they were kind of testing it to see if it could be a sustainable network series. So it was a two hour movie of the week directed by David Hammond, who was a great actor and wonderful director, British. And we shot in Oh my God, we were in, no, we were shot in Hammond, Louisiana, but I don't know why I call him David Hammond. Anyway, we shot in Hammond, Louisiana and, um, and we had no idea that it was ultimately going to be picked up and turned into such an iconic, I'm so happy. I was, I mean, sometimes I just pinch myself to be part. We did stories that no one wanted to touch. I mean, there was, we did a two-part or three-part arc where my character is brutally raped. No one was doing that um, at that time where it's a wife who is raped and they follow my character through the rape and the depression and all. I mean, it was really, it was, I'm so blessed to have been part of that show. What was it like you for you as an actor the first few days on set? Because... You know, Carol O'Connor is huge. It's like, huge. I, I mean, I know you're professional, and we can always say it, but it'd be like if you're someone who's a third-year baseball player and then you walk into the Yankees and Derek Jeter's last year. There, right. were, were you intimidated, or were you just saying, I will let my... You, you had to think, I'm talented, else I wouldn't be here. I mean, they wouldn't sit there and go, you know, but what was it like those early days? Was there intimidation? And plus, Rollins was a great actor, too. Strong, strong, strong actor. So did you really, did, what did you learn in acting, too, through both of them? Well, also keep in mind, Carol was not only the star, he was my boss. His He had a pen name, um, Harris, 
was the last name. Was it Matt Harris? He wrote and, and, and edited and produced under another name. So he was also not only, you know, he was the executive producer, basically. Matt Harris was, I think, his, his pen name. But uh, so I realized the pecking order, you know, and but I never felt intimidated because I was treated so nicely. Um, the director was wonderful. Howard was a dream to work with. Um, and obviously his career, Ragtime, I mean, we, I think I had just seen Ragtime or Ragtime. I mean, my God, it's Howard Rollins. Um, but he was a dream. The whole thing, up until a certain point, uh, by the time I left the show, it wasn't that much of a dream. But uh, the first five years was just um, a dream. And we did quality stuff. I was very, very proud of my work on In the Heat of the Night. Now, that started in 88. Now, when was... I'm going to get you sucker was in 88. And we got to talk about that because that movie also... Cherry is a great character. It's just... It was, it was so different. You know, it was one of those things... You didn't expect it, and and that's what I loved about those movies. You didn't expect it, like right. with Keen uh, when when he says, "You know, I'm a trained soldier." Then they start shooting, and he starts running, you know, and or the stunt the stunt person's doing flips, and it's a guy, you know, like, and it's a guy, and yeah. it's so flagrantly a white guy, yeah, with a mustache, with a big mustache. Yeah, right. How did well? First of all, did you did you meet Keenan from Hollywood Shuffle, or did you know those yes. guys at UCLA? Because I think they all went to UCLA. No, I didn't know them from UCLA. I met <coughs> Keenan and the whole Wayans family because of Hollywood Shuffle through Robert Townsend. Because it was both Keenan and Robert who did um, uh, What's Happening Now. I mean, excuse me, <laughs> Hollywood Shuffle. So uh, it, my I had terrific agents when I was doing um, what's... I mean, I have a terrific agent now, but I had a terrific agent... Uh, when I was doing In the Heat of the Night, and I always worked during my hiatuses. I mean, that's when I did Lucky Chances, that six-hour uh, movie of the week with um, Jackie Collins. And I mean, I always worked during my hiatus. So that's how uh, I'm Going to Get You Sucka came about. And I got a phone call from Keenan, and he said, listen, I want to send you a script. And I went, Sure, great. I just maybe I thought it was going to be Hollywood Shuffle too. I was like really excited because I it would be really nice to do a, a, a comedy. So he sends me this script, and it's this prostitute. And my whole my whole life was I'm a black woman, and I'm not going to play a prostitute. You know, my whole ego right was damaged. Because I really wanted to play the love interest. I said, well, of course you want me to play the love interest. You're not this prostitute. Are you out of your mind? She's only in a couple of scenes. So I called him and I said, Keenan, I can't do this. I, I'm not going to play a prostitute. He says, no, 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 no. Please, I swear to you, this will be your, uh, your moment that Everyone will remember for the rest of your career. And I went, please, come on. Is that it, it, it? Really? You want me to believe that? He said, no, no, I don't want you to play my love interest. You're, you're too funny. Let's do this. And I said, okay. And I trusted him. <laughs> so uh, there was Cherry. And from the special effects of the hair and makeup and then the contact lenses and then being fitted for the, the fake breastplate and the fake ass and the fake leg I said let's go for it and he was right it one agent once told me that playing cherry was I never birthed no babies because everyone remembers that from gone with the wind that and scarlet I don't give it in when you think about I'm going to get you sucka, you think about that prostitute who takes her leg off that's not even the right color. Right. And then you say, I'm going to, don't make me hop for you. Don't, <laughs> don't make, make me... me hop after you. <laughs> it doesn't matter where I am in the world. It doesn't matter the age. It, it, that is, uh, that is, that has followed me in a good sense my whole career. Well, now, when did you decide to go to, in living color 
It was uh, it was the last season, I believe, uh, of that show. Right? What? Yeah. You had you had left? Did you leave in the heat of the night? I left on not on such great terms because I knew my time was up. Um, uh, they had added a recurring character that uh, Carol took quite a liking to, and um, both both personally and professionally. And I saw my lines and my scenes being moved over to this recurring character. And I also knew that Howard was not feeling well and missing work at the time. And I just kind of sensed that um, the interest in Althea Tibbs was waning, not with the fans, not with the audience, but with Carol. So um, I decided to leave uh, by season by I think it was the sixth middle of the sixth season they were bringing Carl Weathers in I think and I just said this is just not right for me and it was that was a uh, my agents and managers did not want me to do this my family didn't want me to do this but when you're living seven months out of the year on location you're alone you're uh, I was missing my boyfriend who's now my husband uh, it was, it was, uh, it wasn't about the money. It was about just, I could be more productive doing other things. And I knew that Carol was not that interested in my character any longer. So in a way I was very fortunate to see the writing on the wall. So I left and I got a phone call probably, and I was very depressed. I mean, it was, it was. Were you depressed because you were missing you're an actor, so is it because you're because you're missing the work? I mean, sometimes you think even if you're not happy on set, you're still on set. I always think you know it's it's like when you do when you do comedy when you do a hell gig. Well, when you get off stage, you feel like crap, but then you're like, well, at least I was on stage. I mean, was that why you were depressed, or was it just that? Uh, no, uh, well, I'm sure that played a part of it. I was depressed because I really loved playing Althea Tibbs, and I really loved my scenes with Howard, and I just. I was mourning the loss of that. And I was mourning the fact that I never missed a day of work out of 118 hours, you know, you know, episodes. And Carol never said goodbye to me. And, um, you know, I stood firm in my position about the accurate depiction of African-Americans. And I know that I was probably um, a, a thorn uh, in his side uh, a few times because I didn't like some of the artistic choices that they forced on actors of color. Um, uh, I also challenged the KKK while I was living in Georgia. Um, Wait, tell me that I story because that's, that's something you don't hear every day that I challenged the KKK. How, how did yeah. you challenge him? So um, we were shooting in a, in a tiny town. Now, remember, this is a long time ago. This is, uh, by then, it's 1993. And um, I learned that there was going to be a KKK rally in the town square where we sh shot the show. I mean, that beautiful... Um, that beautiful edifice, that beautiful building you see that depicts Sparta, Georgia, Sparta, Mississippi, that is Covington, Georgia and, and Conyers, Georgia. I mean, it, it was, you know, it was our second home. So I was told, I learned that there was going to be a KKK rally and I was going to go because back then KKK rallies were open to the public. Um, so I had to inform, um, MGM that I was going to attend this rally because how could I as an African American not want to see the poison the cancer commonly known as the KKK so um, I went uh, 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 MGM said you're going at your own risk we're not going to provide you any security we don't want you to go um, I had had when I did the pilot, I also had a run-in. 
I had my husband, uh, my boyfriend, who's my husband at the time. He is a very tall, six foot four Jewish man from Brooklyn. And he came to visit me in Hammond, Louisiana. And um, the, uh, the hotel in which I was living refused to provide me hotel service after that point. And because I was an interracial relationship in their hotel. And I was also warned by my transportation driver, my driver, that people like me ended up missing. So I knew what I was getting into. And, but, you know, my parents didn't raise any fool. Um, This was America. And I was going to um, safely and consciously experience it. So then I was to educate myself. So I kind of knew what was going on. So cut to now I'm in, you know, Conyers, Covington, Georgia. So I go to a KKK rally and the news crew shows up and they stop me and they interview me. And uh, I said, listen, any idiot, this is America. Any idiot can be in the KKK. This is what freedom. I'm just here to experience it. So I know what I'm talking about. Well, that really upset the KKK and they contacted my employers and said, we can't vouch for her safety. Um, and my employers were not pleased that I took such a public stance. Uh, they thought maybe it would bring problems to the show. It never did, but I think they lost, um, patience with my militancy. Um, cause I dealt with other things on the set that I, I didn't think were fair. So I think they just lost patience with me. So I sensed that and exited stage right before they could let me go or kill my character. So I'm home, I'm going through a depression and not a, not a medical depression, but just, you know, a funk. Yeah, I was in a deep funk and I, and I get a phone call from Tommy Davidson, because he and I had done a movie together. And Tommy, also one of the funniest people on earth and one of the nicest, Tommy says, you want to do In Living Color? He says, are you off of that drama? And I said, yes. And he goes, come join me on In Living Color. And that's how I got the job. Now, now all this just a call. Hi. See, isn't that funny, though, how things work out sometimes? You weren't happy the direction the show you're going. But in your heart, you really love comedy, even though drama's great. So now you leave drama, and then you get on a groundbreaking show. Because in In Limit Color, you know, everyone, everyone remembers those characters. You know, they aren't, you know, as politically correct anymore but you know they're like nowadays people go crazy right but every and that's funny because me and michael bowman had talked about that how when he played the gay character on spin city the only uh gay men of color were the that thing you know those yeah so he said for him he wasn't sure he wasn't used to it so what was it when you went on there what what was the set like did they did they write a lot for you or did you did you enjoy the comedy? Because now you're in front of, it's in front of a crowd. Yes, I which... loved it. Well, first of all, I loved being in front of an audience. But we did a lot of pre-tape too. But um, I have to say, out of all the shows, all the projects I've been a part of, um, no, I take that back. Mad About You was the worst experience I've ever had. But um, In Living Color was very hard. I didn't read, the work wasn't hard. It was getting screen time was very, very hard. You had to compete to get screen time. Um, it was it was cutthroat. Uh, there was so much sexism going on. The women were not treated as equally as the men. Although I have to say, Jim Carrey and David Allen Greer and Toby Dick dreams. I love working with Jim Carrey and because I had known David and you know so that was great it was like home, old home school but um, it was really an uncomfortable working environment because of the competitive competitive nature and women just had to we had to really 
do double duty and work twice as hard as the men to get to get characters and to get screen time. So you leave there. Yeah. And so then what what are your goals at that point? Because you've you've already been on a sitcom, you've been on a drama, you've been on a variety show. All you know, I mean, what's happened it was still it's they're known shows. So you've had at that point, you've had a better career than most people who have ever moved to Hollywood. At least, yeah. you know. So what do you what do you want to do after that? Because you've done you've hit the trifecta. I mean, you've yeah. done there's nothing unless you're all of a sudden there was unless you're going to do cop rock, you know, a drama. <laughs> but what what did you what did you want to do after that? What was your what were your goals? Because I ended up on Melrose Place for some episodes. Yeah, it was just survival at that point. It was we're always auditioning. I mean, it's a very rare uh, number of actors, uh, especially television actors back then. I don't know if it's any. I don't think it's that different now. I was hustling. I'm a. I was a salesperson. You might as well give me a a, a, a suitcase with fuller brushes in it. I was hustle, hustle, hustle. It really didn't matter. No one cared at some, at, at a point. They go, okay, but what are you what are you doing now? I mean, it's really true. They don't care that that you're globally recognized, that your TVQ was at a high rate. They don't care. They want to know what are you doing now. So I was always auditioning always auditioning i heard no 99 percent of the time so the yeses were really important so um i i bounced around i loved being a recurring character actress because it allowed me uh, uh some freedom to go from project to project um you know uh, during that time it was the late 90s things were changing um, so I, I, I kept working. There was never a stop of work, but it was hustle, hustle, hustle. I was really fortunate to do Melrose Place and, and I did a season of Melrose Place. And then, you know, JAG was a fantastic job. Tell me about JAG because that's so, so funny because JAG is like the predecessor of NCIS. Yeah. And, and, and people don't know that NCIS has been on forever. I mean, it, you know, yes. which you've been on Same NCIS. People. So. Mm-hmm. How did JAG come about? Did you did you play a military person? I mean, what was your role in JAG? No, it was really funny. So, um, D. Wallace Stone was supposed to play a. This is what I was told by casting. You know, I don't know if it's true. Anyway, I think it was intentionally uh, initially a role for D. Wallace Stone. I don't know what happened. So then they had to hold auditions. I had worked with Chaz Floyd Johnson, one of the nicest uh, executive producers in, in the world. I did one of my first hour-long shows was uh, as a guest star was Hunter. <laughs> and I played, uh, back then there was a New York Times reporter, true story, who fabricated a, a story and she won the Pulitzer. But she made up the story. Well, it was kind of the same. So, so the hunter was based on that. So, I play this reporter who murders a homeless woman, Bea, uh, Bea Richards, from the original In the Heat of the Night cycle. Anyway, so my my reporter character kills her, so I can get a good story about homeless people, homeless people getting killed. Okay, so I'm killed at the end. It was a wonderful killing scene. So Chaz does goes on to do a million other shows and then he and donald belisario come up with you know jag and Chaz uh brought me in on this audition and it was supposed to be one episode um as uh congresswoman bobby latham who sat on the committee for blah 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 military yada yada that turned into a recurring character for almost five seasons i and she did i mean I was on so long that she became a senator. <laughs> so I loved Jag. So Jag, I think I my first episode was maybe 1997. I don't remember. So I went from 1997 to 2002. I loved it. Now, earlier you said Raymond Simone is one of the funniest Funniest. People. Funniest. So funniest. you were on, that's so Raven. 
And I, yeah. I think my friend Rose Abdu was on that. She made, I don't know if Rose, yes. but, yeah, I'm friends yes. with Rose. I've known Rose's husband. Yes. Me and Rose's I husband, like we used to do comedy together in Philly in 1988, her husband John. And so I yeah. met her when we moved to LA. So, she's very funny. Oh, yeah, she's Rose. amazing. What, yeah. what made Raven so funny? Oh my God. When I used to do a lot of, a lot of physical comedy, um, people would always compare me to Carol Lombard and um, and Lucille Ball. I was like the go-to person, you know. You want physical comedy, and she's kind of pretty, but you did it. It would be okay. Go to Amory Johnson. I wasn't pretty, pretty, but I was kind of pretty, so I fit. I fit in that category that you would never expect someone who looked like me to fall on my face or take a pie in the face. You know, it was a Carol Lombard, Lucille Ball syndrome. So. Um, but when I started to work with Raven, and she was young, she was young Raven Simone. She's still young to me now, but, you know, she was, um, she is gorgeous, and she can take such a pie in the face that she is Lucille Ball. And she, Lucille Ball worked diligently. It didn't, you know, it wasn't like, ha ha, I'm going to be funny. Lucille Ball was a genius with timing, and so was Raven Simone. So you recurred on that show. Now, through your career, well, first of all, I, what made Mad About You so bad? Oh, God, it was horrible. The director was so mean. I remember sitting at the table read, and for your audience, a table read is when everyone is cast, and you your first day of rehearsals, you sit at this long table, and you read the script. And the network representatives are there and all the writers and the showrunner and the blah, blah, studio, blah, 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 blah. There are a hundred people sitting around drinking coffee. And so the cast, you know, the series regulars and the guest stars are there and you're reading the script. And Mel Brooks was one of the recurring characters that week. And there was a very young actor next to me, a young guy. He just had maybe two or three lines. I mean, really, like he was a pizza deliverer, you know? And Mel Brooks didn't think he delivered the line fast enough. Now, this is the table read, and, and remind me to tell you a very valuable lesson I learned from this. This was the table read. Do you know that they fired that actor right there because Mel Brooks didn't like him? I said to myself, what the F? So I walked this poor actor to his car. He was, he was shell-shocked. He had never experienced anything like this. And I said, trust me, because I'd been, at that point I'd never been fired before, but I'd been with actors who had been fired and then who rise again. And I told him, I said, trust me, this is just a speck of time. Everything will be fine. Allow yourself to be unhappy now, but believe me, everything will be fine. So um, I went back in, finished the table read, and now we're starting to rehearse. And Helen Hunt was so cold and so dismissive of me. Paul Reiser was wonderful. He could see it. So he would always go, you doing okay? Would you like a cup of da 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 He was trying to be very accommodating. She was so cold and not a team player with me at all. And I was playing a school therapist. So there, I think the storyline was their kid was, they were trying to get their baby into school. I don't know what it was. It was such a nightmare. I don't even remember it. And um, then... Uh, we were at, we were shooting in front of the audience. Back then you would do two shows, one show, dinner show. And my, my character would have one line and it always, a guaranteed laugh, always got a laugh. And for some reason that either bothered Helen or it bothered the director because the director walked up to me and says, do it like you did at the audition. Stop doing what you're doing. And I said, but it's working. He said, no, it's not. So I'm thinking, are you out of your mind? So I did it the way he wanted me to do it, laid an egg, just dead silence. And I think that was done intentionally. And so I uh, shot the show, had to do some additional uh, line recording, went back to do some ADR. The ADR producer said, hey, your character's coming back. I said, no, it's not. I said, this was the worst job I've ever had in my life and I am not coming back. 
He said, what? You're saying no to Mad About You? I said no so loudly that I'm sure, you know, David O. Selnick heard it buried underneath uh, MGM Studios. Now, now, what did you learn from that? You said you learned something. Don't go to a table read. You see, you're not obligated to go to a table read, especially in sitcoms. Because even though you've got cast, that doesn't necessarily mean they can't fire you. So um, unless I really know the people involved, I don't go to table reads. Now, that was a bad experience. Just tell me a couple of good experiences in guest starring, not in your thing. Because there's like, I know you run your own NCIS. Everyone says NCIS is run so smoothly. Fabulous. You walk in and it's just like they, because everybody knows they have a job until Mark Harmon says, yeah, we know, they know they're going to work forever. They know. Fabulous. Fabulous. Um, I have to tell you that I don't know how long my INDB Pro page is, but it's, it's extensive. Um, I've only had three bad jobs. I just mentioned Mad About You. And the other, uh, and uh, I did a pilot and... Um, uh, it was horrible, and I was treated horribly by the director, who will remain nameless, Jim Burroughs. And the final bad jobs that I was fired from, both Chuck Lorre shows. I'll never, ever work for Chuck Lorre. He fired me. The first job was Dharma and Greg, and I was brought in as a guest star, maybe recurring. And I was to play a um, like a like an accountant or an SEC investigator. I mean, you know, just a, a little comedy, but not much. And when I went into wardrobe, and I know the wardrobe uh, mistress, uh, she and I did in Living Color together, and she said, "I hate to tell you this, but they want you to wear a padded bra. They think your breasts are too small." I said, "Excuse me." Now, keep in mind. I'm part of the Screen Actors Guild. <laughs> I'm a senior officer at the Screen Actors Guild. And I said, what? They said, yeah, they want you to wear a padded bra because you don't look sexy enough. So I refused. And uh, we taped the first show. And uh, they still said, you've got to put this bra on. I said, no, I was fired. Well, obviously, I filed a complaint. And I won't go into that. So then the second time around, I, I'm supposed to do, um, I don't even remember the name, Mom, another uh, uh, Chuck Lorre show. And I go in, I get the role, and I'm rehearsing, and I don't remember the name of the lead of the show, but she, I think she was about to leave the show, so there was a lot of internal drama going on. Anyway, she didn't like the way I delivered a line, so I was fired. Never, ever. I And I still get requests, hey, can she audition? No. Don't even talk to her. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother to even, I don't even watch any of his shows because it was just a horrible experience. So that was it. Everything else has been a dream. I did, I did a small uh, holiday film, the director, Terry Vaughn. I did it in Atlanta, Georgia a few years ago. One of the best gigs I've ever had. Got paid nothing, but it was one of the best gigs I've ever had. I have been so fortunate. How has how so helped me, Todd? I mean, it's funny. My, my, oh, wife, my, my wife loves episodic TV, and I was flipping around one time, and that was on it. And I said to her, I said, Joanne, you should really watch this show. She loves it. So how is it working it's, on that set? Because plus, it's such dream. a great cast. A dream, and I God, I I hope they bring my character back or cast me in a different character. It was a dream. The cast was fantastic. The crew was fantastic. Marsha Gay Harden is a dream come true. It was an absolute dream to work on. So help me, Todd. So what's coming up for you? You know, you 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 always act, and you you know you work a lot. You have the production going, but it's also like you said. You still audition. And it's funny, a friend of mine was a writer who said he wrote for uh, Queen of the South. And he said, like, Max Van Sindow was auditioning. And it's like, 
Yeah. Okay, Max yeah. Mitzindel is an Oscar winner. Like, you know, yeah, that's what people don't crazy. get. You don't get, so, yeah. you know, do you still get offers or do you still have to audition? Uh, rarely do I get offers. I just had an audition yesterday. So, um, but fortunately I'm at that point where I can pick and choose the audition. Um, um, but it's still, you know, I still want to work, but there's really nothing out there. I was going to ask you, you know, everyone says, you know, the industry has to change for women who get older and roles yeah. for women of color. Have you, cause you've been in the industry for a long time and you've gone years. through it. So have you seen a big change or is it not that much change for getting roles for women who are over 50 women who are of color over 50? What is your, what is your take on that? I think there, I would be lying if I didn't tell you that there is, there are wonderful opportunities for actors of color without question. Well, few exceptions, native American uh, performers are still ignored. Um, statistically their numbers are horrific and it's an embarrassment. Um, it's getting a little better for Asian American, uh, Pacific Islander, uh, uh, actors, very, very difficult for actors who portray Middle Eastern cultures and, and ethnicities, African Americans, we're doing exceedingly well, um, based, uh, purely based on our statistics, our national statistics. So we exceed, uh, sometimes our national statistics. So we're doing really, really well, but women of color are still uh, of a particular age and women across the board of a particular age are still an afterthought. Um, we are, you know, moms, grand, not that there's anything wrong playing mothers, grandmothers and stuff like that, but we're really just there to um, lay the pipe, so to speak. The biggest problem not necessarily the lack of opportunity or the lack of roles. The pay is horrific. I make, uh, you know, I make a quarter of what I used to make because of the terrible deals we have in streaming. Streaming is really one of the most abusive, financially abusive um, uh, platforms for distribution for artists ever created. Horrible. Um, you know, in some, for some projects, you can view some of my work, uh, you know, 24 seven for a year and I'll get $27. Um, uh, it is like I said, they have created our employers <coughs> with the, with our unions aiding and abetting. They have created the perfect formula to turn us into hobbyists. And I'm, you know, like, um, like uh, Eve Arden and others were the last of the studio, um, this, this, the studio stars who transitioned into television pretty well and kind of still had some dignity in their careers. We're uh, my age and older. We're part of that. We're part of that uh, that population of actors who remember the three networks and remember syndication. And remember the beginning of Basic Cable, uh, and we know how bad uh, content made for streaming is, uh, how bad the pay is, how bad the distribution is, how bad the treatment is. Um, you know, they're not Netflix and Hulu and others aren't there to make good work. They're just there to make content. And if you notice, they're turning into licensing entities now because they figured it out. They, they, it's cheaper to license. It's more profitable to license than it is to create. So Netflix is just going to turn into a, a bigger uh, me TV. <laughs> you know, it's just going to capture all of these iconic shows and not so iconic shows and make their fortune that way. It's crazy. Well, you were great today. So you didn't know what you were going to talk about. You said, what are we going to talk I about? I, I talked too much. No, it was great. I want to thank you. So so the the, move, the movie you're producing, do you have a guideline of when that's going to be done or you're not sure? or? Well, we're certainly going to be done uh, in time for all the festivals in 2024. And do you have a title? So, yeah, The Addiction of Hope. Oh, yeah, you said that. Okay. Title. And uh, uh, it'll be ready for the festival circuit and hopefully for distribution. Well, in, uh, 
in, you know, summer, probably fall 2024. I want to thank you for coming on. People, uh, go look through IMDb. Look at Anne-Marie's uh, great body work. And if you haven't seen I'm Going to Get You Sucker, you got to go watch it. <laughs> and see Hollywood Shuffle, too. Because when you'll know what you're talking about, when you hear whole cake, whole cake, everyone want a whole cake. <laughs> Funniest scene. Anyway, people, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 990 episodes there. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at CooperTalk. Instagram, I'm at CooperTalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.